Good morning. You are listening to the Pensacola Expert Panel on News Radio 92.3. I'm Jenna Barr. If you'd like to text in a question this morning for our next expert, please feel free to text or call in 850-437-1620. I want to welcome by phone Terrence A. Gross. Good morning, Terrence. Uh, good morning, Jenna, and uh, glad to be back. I think I had a brain fart and missed our last show, but I apologize for that. But well, it's I'm good ready, to have you back. And able to, yeah. Well, anyway, uh, as you know, I always come prepared with a, uh, a topic of the day. But, again, if someone's been injured and has a question, they can call you or text you at the number that you'll give them again, and uh, we will uh, deal with that question. I don't mind taking a time out for my topic. And what's that number they can text you or call you at? Oh, absolutely. Please feel free. We love to hear from you this morning. 850-437-1620 to the Pensacola Expert Panel. Perfect. And uh, again, it's Terrence Gross. I've been on this show many, many years. I've been a lawyer in Pensacola for 43 years. I only handle personal injury cases. We don't have billboards. We don't have TV ads. We do some uh, informationals like this on radio, which we like to do, and we're always available for free consultation. So the topic of today that I want to discuss is some esoteric laws that are very subtle. They're very subtle. Most people don't know about them. They're there, but they were passed in years gone by as an effort to tamp down uh, jury verdicts, what people may call tort reform packages that were passed by the legislature and are in effect today, but the average person walking around has no idea. One of those laws, lawyers would call this the non-joinder statute. It was passed in 1981, and I remember it very well, because I became a lawyer in 1979. So before 1981, if Jenna caused a wreck and she was insured by State Farm, I could sue her, but I could also mention State Farm in my complaint and can mention State Farm um, in the courtroom. I remember going to court and Jenna would be sitting there all prim and proper or whatever, and I could say, uh, but her lawyers, lawyers, State Farm's lawyers, this, this, and this, and so the jury would absolutely know that Jenna had insurance, so they wouldn't worry that if they gave a verdict that it would somehow hurt Jenna. Well, after 1981, we cannot do that. So if, we, if Jenna caused a wreck tomorrow and I sued her, it would be my client versus her. There would be no mention of her insurance company whether it's State Farm or some other company, there'd be no mention of it in the complaint, and there could be no mention in the courtroom. So all the jury would see is her, and there may be one or two of those jurors when they go back to deliberate, and they're trying to decide a fair verdict for the victim, but they could also say, you know, we're worried about Jenna. I mean, she's such a nice lady. She, I mean, what if we get too big a verdict? She's got to pay something. That doesn't seem fair. And they could discuss that in the jury room and obviously uh, keep a verdict down, a, a verdict that should be more, maybe. And I'll give you a great example. In 1996, I'm in Okaloosa County, and I'm representing a young Navy guy that was 
rendered, uh, you know, rear-ended, had a whiplash, but ended, actually ended up in uh, with a cervical fusion um, after a little old lady had rear-ended him in uh, Mariestra Cuttle. So we go to trial. Of course, the old lady's got plenty of insurance, but the jury didn't know that. And throughout the whole trial, the old lady's lawyer kept on referring to her as the widow lady, and I kept on objecting to that, of course. Then they put her on the stand, and I was smart enough to know I was not going to beat up on Grandma. This lady was sweet, and it took her so long to even get to the stand. She had to get up, got her cane, the, her lawyer, you know, doing a, you know, he was milking this thing, helped her you know, with her elbow and walked her up to the stand. She gets there with a smile and whatever, and I just pretty much asked, isn't it true that you reared to my client? Yes, and I just, that was about it. I, I wasn't going to beat up on her, but we ended up with a very low verdict and uh, eventually got appealed. But at the end of the day, I think the jury was so worried about us getting money from Grandma. She was so sweet, and, and they probably hated me for suing Grandma, and they probably figured, well, if there was insurance, certainly – the lawyers would have mentioned it, or certainly somebody would have mentioned insurance. And if they didn't mention insurance, maybe grandma didn't have insurance. And I think as a result, um, it could lead to negative verdicts. I had a case I tried in December here in Escambia County, Florida. Same thing happened. Um, while I, we got a verdict that was not that good, uh, we did get some feedback from the jurors, and at least one of them was worried that the judgment could exceed whatever insurance they thought my client, the defendant, could have had. And because of that, they kept the verdict lower. They were worried about you know, the, the defendant having to pay out of his pocket. But I can assure anybody listening, if you ever are in trial, you've been subpoenaed as a juror for trial, and it's a civil case, not a criminal case, a civil case where someone is suing somebody else for money, you better believe there's insurance. Lawyers don't sue people, but we can't mention the insurance company. So we have to sue the person, serve them, even though the insurance company pays for all the lawyer's fees, pays all the court costs, and, and will pay the judgment, uh, whatever it may be. Lawyers don't go after people, but nobody knows that because – of the non-joinder statute. So the non-joinder statute, it's been on the books for pretty much my whole career for over 40 years, but the average person probably until today, uh, our listeners do not realize that's the case. So you, you just don't hear it. And if you were to blurt out, if my client or somebody were to blurt out that there was insurance, not only will there be a mistrial, but the judge would probably take a time out and either uh, rake the lawyer over the coals or hold him uh, in contempt of court, the judge would be very, very unhappy uh, with that. So that's just one rule of law. So people have to understand that there's many rules of law that affect what juries hear. They don't hear everything. They hear bits and pieces according to the rules of evidence. And one of these is you can't mention insurance. Next topic, Jenna, so I know everybody's spellbound. So the other one, this is the most frustrating thing that I get with clients. So let's say there's some kind of accident. Mm -hmm. 
And it's one of these accidents where maybe it's a he said, she said. Driver number one says this. Driver number two says this. There are no eyewitnesses. And the officer comes, and he's got to make a decision as to, you know, who's at fault. And he may or may not do that. But normally they give a ticket to somebody and, and, and make notations in a tax report. Now, what gets very frustrating to my clients is the first rule of law you have to know under the accident report privilege is that who got the ticket is inadmissible in 99% of the cases. The only time who got the ticket could be admitted is if the defendant who got the ticket went to live court and pleads guilty. Well, nobody really does that. They either mail the ticket in with a check, which is not a plea of guilty, or if they end up in court and they say no contest, that's not a plea of guilty. So they have to go to court, be in the courtroom, and plead guilty, which, again, just doesn't happen. So really, truthfully, who got the ticket is never, ever presented to the jury. The jury may want to know it. My clients, see who, if you, you know, in one of these he said, she said things, they certainly want the jury to know it. But if one of my clients were to spout that out in the middle of a trial, the judge will bite my head off, bite my client's head off, call this trial, and then we got to go back and try this case again six months later before another jury. So it, it's, it's, it's a, and you may wonder why the heck is that law there? And I think the answer is simple. At some point, whenever this law was passed, I believe in the 1970s or 60s, it was deemed that they didn't want the officer to be the judge and the jury. They figured that most jurors will put so much weight on who got the ticket. But if you stop and think about it, the police officer didn't witness the accident. So these officers come to the scene of these accidents, you know, minutes later, sometimes an hour after the accident. And then they are trying to piece it together like Sherlock Holmes and play Solomon and, and give somebody a ticket. But they, they just didn't want that officer to be, end up being the judge of the jury because the officer could be mistaken. The officer could be biased. What if, one of the participants in the wreck is a cute female, and the officer kind of is cozying up to her. What if one of the uh, participants is black, and the officer is a racist? You know, what if the officer in a small town knows one of the participants, you know, or has heard of one of the participants, or whatever it may be? There may be some type of bias <clears throat> that the officer may have uh, for or against one of the parties. It, it, it shouldn't be the be-all or the end-all. So at the end of the day, the legislature deemed decades and decades ago that who got the ticket will be inadmissible in court. In fact, if you really want to know the truth, in 90% of the cases that I, I go to trial on, we don't even call the arresting officer. We don't even take the arresting mm. officer's uh, deposition, unless they know something, unless they know something that they observed. Maybe they went to the mm-hmm. scene and they saw that the defendant was drinking. Yes. Oh, that's 
that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I do have a couple of texts coming in real quick. Uh, Terrence A. Gross is here on the Pensacola Expert Panel. If you want to text in 850-437-1620. This is a fascinating conversation. I love hearing this topic. Thank you, Terrence, for talking about these different things and highlighting things that are just left in the dark. Um, Then a little bit of a follow-up question that we're going to backtrack to. um, The point before you were saying... What is the name of the statute uh, that says um, you can't mention the insurance? It's called the non-joinder statute. Okay. Non-joinder. You're not allowed to join an insurance company uh, for the defendant. Right. Now, there is an exception if, if you're suing your own insurance company. If you're suing your own like uninsured motorist, then you can name them in court. Mm. But if you're suing, you cannot mention the defendant's insurance company in the complaint. You can't mention the defendant's insurance company in trial. If you do, it'll be hell to pay. Okay. Uh, It'll be a mistrial, and the judge will probably hold that lawyer in contempt of court, possibly, depending on the judge. Okay. Hey, thank you for reiterating that. I appreciate it, Terrence. All right. So, uh, so there, there are lots of little rules and, and caveats, and that's why lawyers have to know the rules of evidence and stuff. So everybody thinks you can just go and say this or say that or whatever, and, and there are a lot of um, rules. You know, we, most people have heard of the hearsay rule, you know, just because someone uh, may be eyewitness. So what if there is a alleged eyewitness and the eyewitness comes up to the, your, your client, the injured party and the eyewitness looks at them after the wreck and they tell the injured party, I saw everything that other guy was at fault. But meanwhile, that eyewitness disappears. He's got to, they got to go to work. They don't leave the business card. They're gone. You'll never see him again. Well, your client can't go to court and say, well, if I have to ask this eyewitness came to me, and the eyewitness said, I saw everything, and the other person was at fault. It sounds so good. That is, that's not coming in. That's hearsay. It is not going to be coming in because that, there's no way for a lawyer to cross-examine that. And, and this, this fictitious person who never left their business card, uh, so that even though they may have said that, it's, it's not going to come in. Now, what can come in, there is an exception. Every rule has exceptions, and there is an exception to the hearsay rule. And what it says is if the defendant says something, it's called an admission against, against interest. So if the defendant were to pop out after I could say, oh, I'm so sorry I didn't see you. I was so sorry I was looking at that billboard. I'm so sorry I looked down for one second. Well, that's coming in, even though it's hearsay. It's an exception to the hearsay rule, and, and, and it will come into evidence as an omission against entrance or an omission of a party. Uh, either way, it's going to be coming in into evidence, and that's why lawyers are trained. That's why we go to law school, and, and you got to just know this stuff. I've lived and breathed it, but when you're in the courtroom, it's just these, you know, the, the, it's, everything's going so fast as far as your objections. You've got to anticipate uh, uh, whatever. Um, and there's also something that people don't know about. There is something called a motion in limine, a motion in limine. And what that means, 
it could be limit testimony. So in all these trials, a lot of the testimony, as lawyers start getting closer to closer to trial, they are examining the records. They're examining the facts. And if they see something that possibly could be inadmissible, then that lawyer, if they're competent, if they're a competent lawyer, which I hope they are, they should file something called a motion in limine. And a motion in limine means judge. Please issue an order before the trial, not allowing the other side to present certain testimonies. So, for instance, I'll give you an example. I'm representing you, and I, I hate to use you an example, but you're, you're here, right. and you're, I can pick on you. Yeah. Uh, but let's say, let's say in your past, you know, eight years ago, let's say you went through a really bad time in your life, and you went through drug rehab. So you had a drug problem, and you, and you, and you went through all that, but you had done all these bad drugs. You went through rehab, cleaned up your act, and now, you know, I'm representing you now, and you've had a car wreck. And, of course, during discovery, they learn about your drug rehab thing. So they want to show the jury that Jenna's not so sweet, just not the everyday girl that she seems to be. She looks so good in the courtroom, all dressed up and pretty and, and whatever. But but we want that jury to know that you know, Jenna had a drug problem eight years ago, and you need to know about that. Well, I'm not going to let them do that. I would file a motion on liberty saying, Judge, this testimony that they're trying to bring in has no relevance to the case. It's, it's irrelevant what happened to her or what she did eight years ago. It's nothing to do with her case. And it's also highly prejudicial. And, and I would say 99% of the judges would certainly grant that motion and not let the insurance company bring that, you know, uh, testimony in the court to, to, you know, damage uh, the case or her, her veracity or, or whatever. So, yeah, there, there there are limits on on what can come in evidence. Even criminal convictions, a lot of them cannot come in. You can only let a jury know about a felony co- conviction. So if you've been arrested for felony, say you got felony possession of marijuana, but it was your first offense and you weren't convicted, you could plea and a judge could withhold adjudication. If a judge withholds adjudication, you were never convicted. So you could have been put on probation pay the fine, gotten a lawyer, pled guilty, but if you're not convicted, then you're not a convicted felon. And, mm-hmm. and, and so, therefore, that's inadmissible at a future trial. So some future trial, they can never present evidence that, that, they, that you had felony possession of marijuana in the past or whatever because it's not a felony conviction. And then on misdemeanors, it can only be misdemeanors involving fraud and deceit. It has to be convictions. So if you've been arrested for disturbing the peace, that's not a fraud. If you've been uh, arrested a prior DUI, a jury's not going to know about that. Uh, battery, if you hit somebody, uh, a jury will never know about that. So the only misdemeanors that a jury can know about are misdemeanors where you've been convicted, where you're adjudicated guilty, and, and that they involve fraud or deceit. That would be like worthless checks, maybe, or some type of theft. Or, or lying or, or whatever, but perjury is a felony, I guess. But anyway, so there's all these little rules, and, and, and so um, it, you know, it's certainly, I've heard some people say, well, I'm going to be my own lawyer. I'm thinking, oh, good luck with that, you know, because you just, you know, you don't know how technical all, all this stuff is. So I can see on my clock that we're soon to be running out of time, 
This is Terrence Gross. I want to let you know, uh, presently, I am proud to announce and pleased to announce that my three law partners are all my son. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, Mr. Schuster, my longtime partner, met his demise. He he passed away in September. But Mm -hmm. uh, my three sons are my partners today, uh, Rhett Gross, Tyler Gross, and Dalton Allen. And we have five offices throughout the Panhandle. If you wish to call us, in Pensacola, for instance, uh, 850-434-3333, or visit us at the web at Gross & Schuster.